Welcome to this episode of the 9420 podcast, where we talk about the music that we love and the industry that we tolerate. episode of the 9420 podcast. That was Ethan Gold's single, Alexandria Me. Hey, Carl and Greg, how are you guys doing tonight? 
Hello. Hi, uh, Nicole. Hi, Greg. How's everybody doing? Hey, hey, Carl. So let's go, you know, let's for the first time go right to the music. That's an interesting, interesting track. It's a mixture I, of like. I'm totally digging this guy. Yeah, what I like about it, it has kind of an EDM vibe, kind of in the way it starts with, you know, it's really percussive and like syncopated. But then his voice is, and his voice kind of follows it right along with it has that 90s, yeah. Yeah, late I, 90s, I, I hear early something. 2000s, you know, power pop voice. So yeah, it's an interesting mix of stuff. I like it. I, I hear something completely different. I hear that kind of like that throwback new wave alternative sound. It reminds me of like television, or I don't know if you remember Tom Verlaine, but. I'll be doing. I didn't know who's that. The, who's the other guy in television? There was another guy. Mm, I don't know. You'll have to go back and listen and drop it in. But that stuff that was on the cusp of like it wasn't new wave. Uh, it was more alternative and more experimental. But yet, Richard you Lloyd. Know, there you go. There you the go. The guy, the guy who managed Richard Lloyd, came up to yeah. one night at, at a um, Great Gilders show and wanted to manage me. Yeah, that's interesting because that would have been. You would have represented maybe kind of a more traditional folk and, take and on honest, what he was and working with. To be honest with, with you, I, I messed it up. Yeah, I, I really I enjoyed those television records back in the day, and um, so I I went and looked uh, at Ethan's dot com, and there was an interesting thing written there. It said he identifies as an underground song maker. Uh, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, I think this guy's just got yeah, a he's lot like to you. offer. And, he's, um, yeah, he's, he's, I was going to say, he's a little quirky. He's a little like into more of the like, what's not necessarily mainstream. And, it's kind and of different. esoteric, yeah. 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 So I, I love this stuff. I will, I, will be, I will be going to school on his output, I can tell you. Well, good, because he's got uh, a lot of new music coming out this year, which we'll Excellent. talk about later in the episode, which is kind of cool. Excellent. Maybe we'll do and another. And where we find him again? So we found him through this really great company called Lakeside Management. Um, they represent a lot of really interesting up-and-coming artists and um, some seasoned artists as well. And he's one of a few that they've sent our way that we have featured on the podcast so far. <laughs> Lately, this has been coming the Lakeside <laughs> Management podcast. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they have really interesting people that they manage, so. Yeah. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely an array. Yeah. They're, they're not. You wouldn't say they're typecast in one specific. That's real. Kind of that's real vision. Uh, that's real visualization. That's real curation. That uh, these managers would be on top of a podcast as cool as this this early. Is our podcast that cool though? Really? Oh, I think it's extra- <laughs> extraordinarily cool. As long as Carl know. doesn't use the sound effects and doesn't. Okay. Uh, see. <laughs> Baby Carla needed her own opinion. So you were talking about how you're happy that the music business is opening up now because of, you know, COVID's kind of hopefully on the wane and, you know, live performances are starting to come back. So talk about that, Greg. Well, I think that live business is starting to come back, but I, I more and more have kind of reconciled the idea that the business that I knew, the business that I worked in, the business that I tried to promote for the majority of my career, it doesn't exist anymore. And I'm, you know, I'm just coming to grips with that. The idea that you cannot survive making albums and pay your bills with the expectation of the money that you'll make, the royalties that you'll receive from streaming services. So basically people don't sell records anymore. I'm just coming to grips with all of it. I don't think I'm taking a negative slant 
I think, in fact, I am using it to, um, I don't know, energize or inspire me in the work going forward. I'll get this figured out. I've spent over 30 years working on behalf of creative people, and I want to do it for another 10 or 15 years. So trying to stay positive. No, but you had also said, Greg, before we started recording this too, that one of the things that has been more in the forefront of the news this week has been the artists that have wanted or have been talking about going on tour. And literally every day, it's like you're finding different acts or artists who are like, I've got a 20 city tour that's going on, get your tickets for like the end of the year. So I think in terms of that too, like artists are finally excited to maybe be getting out and play they're starting to figure out what their tours look like but it's definitely way different than it was before covid and i I think we predicted it to some degree too i mean we talked about months ago we talked about the idea what if the live business is bigger what if it's better what if people that normally wouldn't have gone out to see six or eight shows over the course of a year now are going to come out you know, for no other factor than cabin fever. So what if... <laughs> Nothing has changed. <laughs> it's exactly the same as it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's the exact same business as was when I was 14. I love that music. It's true. <laughs> now that I think, I, I've, I've totally changed my opinion. The music business is exactly the way it was in 1961. It's exactly the same. Nothing has changed. Well, do you think people are actually going to go out and see these live performances now, especially the ones that are doing stadium tours? Yeah, people are going to go out. I'll tell you what, I I was kind of unaware of uh, the degree to which people were, were going to these concerts. I. I recently, uh, a few days ago, watched the uh, documentary that Pink has out there. Mm-hmm. And that Wembley show, it is, it's absolutely mind-boggling how many people they had at that show. And I guess they replicated that across, you know, Europe. You know how hard it is to sell 100,000 people something that cost a couple hundred bucks? You know, you and and I are different. I think I was ruined, and maybe other artists don't feel this way, but being an artist, I never really cared to see other people live. To me, it was like I saw behind the curtain. I know what goes on. It doesn't really matter to me. You know, occasionally I would like to see acts, but I was never a a live performance goer. There may come a time when it's all we have. I look back on, this is funny, when I was like, when I was 13, I used to be in this um, drum and bugle corps, you know, marching band thing. And we used to march and stuff. And, and it was from 13 to 19. So there were these older kids there. So anyway, so we used to go on these buses in the summer. So this is the summer. We're talking June 69, right? And they just talked about how they got these tickets to this show upstate. So I remember coming home to my mom saying, Mom, what, Carl? You know, the guys in the drum and bugle corps, they're going to this concert upstate, you know, in New York, can I go? He goes, where? I'm saying, he goes, it's like on the, I think it's in this, this field. And he goes, it's for like three days. You're not going for three days, a 13 year old <laughs> kid with these strange 18 year olds. I go, but come on, man, it's going to be a big concert. I think Jimmy Hendrix is going to be there. I don't care. You're not going. And it was Woodstock, right? It was Woodstock. Yeah, that's so crazy. I couldn't, wouldn't get to go. But looking back, I would have killed myself at Woodstock. 
<laughs> mud and crowds and people and rain and hot. Come on, who wants to sit and do that? I'm sorry, forget it. Yeah, I've never, uh, I've never, I can't say that I've thoroughly enjoyed the the larger shows. My most memorable memorable shows are the ones that you know were intimate and you know you were really able to hear and key on the performances. I saw Elton John in, in Central Park, you know, back in like 78, I guess. There were a few folks Gary. at that show. And and, uh, and yeah, and, and all I know is, all I remember, I lost my friend, and half the time I was walking around, <laughs> I couldn't get anywhere near anybody. Last thing I saw was when my little nephews were like young, and they wanted to see Bon Jovi, so we're talking like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I took them to see Bon Jovi at the garden, you know, because they liked him. And yeah, I, I wanted to kill myself. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> so it's not music. It's I don't just, know when the last show, I, don't, I can't recall the last large show I went to. I remember mine and it's because it was the first time my husband and I really actually like got to go to a concert together, even though mm. we've been together for six years. Mm. And it was Chris Stapleton at the Ascend Amphitheater in downtown Nashville. And that was fun. Because just because like there's not really a lot of seating there, it's more you bring your chairs and your picnic blanket, and you can see there's no bad view of the stage, and it that was a fun show. But I will say, mm. as I get older, I have not a lot of desire to go to like the big things where there's like thousands upon thousands of people, and you have to crane your neck to get a view of something. But I do like right. the smaller, intimate shows, like going to the Bluebirds, probably like one of those things that people do in Nashville, but like going to a show of that size and caliber where you got really good people who are putting on a good performance, but it's not crowded. Right. Let's For listen to part, more music, shall we? This one is Our Love is Beautiful.
my, my. I, I was like dancing. And his vocal, too. I mean, there's, it has a real presence to it, and it's the imperfection. Right. Well, that's you well, know. I hope you won't take effect, uh, offense to this, but I hear that. What I no, love I mean, about uh, it is you, nothing. Are you familiar with wabi sabi? No. No. Uh, but, uh, it's a Japanese term. It's like part of a Japanese aesthetic that basically imperfections are what make things perfect. Oh, I, Seeing well, I, the beauty well, in the imperfection. I agree yeah. with that because I, what I loved about it was like you can tell none of, none of those keyboards were programmed. They were being, yeah. pl- they were being played because yeah. a lot of times they were out of sync, like weren't exactly hitting. And I loved that. And the drums were real. Yeah, there's some drum could, drops. Yeah, there's I loved some it. It drop beats. like a real and, just like yeah. – people in a room doing something so i'm really yeah. digging these recordings i i'm hoping that our music supervisor friends are listening uh, listening <laughs> yep absolutely well and i will say that song just kind of sitting here listening to it with you guys it brought me back to like my college days in the early 2000s of just like turning on some good music putting it on studying in the library and it like that's the type of music that I mean, at least for me in my youth and tempered youth, I listen to like his sound is kind of all over the place, but it's great. And it just reminds me of like days in the library, turning stuff on mm-hmm. and just tuning everything out. And dare I say, I hear the Beatles in there. Yeah, I we, mean, I, oh, I, can understand, I, can, I totally do we Did we ask him questions this week? We, no, we did. So now we're going to get to hear, but, but now we get to meet Ethan a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Are you ready for so, our questions of the week, Carl? Yeah, so basically a fun fact about Ethan is that he actually writes a lot of songs in his sleep, but obviously us kind of being in the Nashville area, we know that a very strong tradition is co-writing and co-writing in person. So we asked him, how would you describe- so instead, of, instead of who you're co-writing with, we ask Ethan who you're sleeping with. <laughs> no, but we asked him, like, how would you describe your way of writing and have you ever written with other people since he does write a lot of songs in his sleep? Let's see what he says. Well, in a way, I, I feel uh, I do write songs in my sleep um, more and more these days. And in a way, it is a form of collaboration because I don't usually get the whole thing delivered. Um, I'll get portions of it. And so then my waking self gets to collaborate with whatever comes to me in the dreams. Um, but I have done a little bit of uh, co-writing. I've been to Nashville a couple times and, and uh, it's an amazing community you guys have it's kind of comical to me you'll get in an uber or whatever and basically everybody you meet is like hey we should do a co-write which is great it just makes for a a a great sense of community and lots of songs being made so i'm envious of you living here in a place where music is the main currency i don't believe him right there i don't think he envies the nashville co-write thing i think he likes to write by (laughs) himself so he doesn't he doesn't no he doesn't envy the nashville co-write he envies the fact that nashville's currency in his mind is music so like he wasn't talking about i think nashville's currency these days is is alcohol but (laughs) i i agree with you 100 percent. although i do think that for somebody coming in for an outsider that you know may or may not identify with being a creative person or being a uh, an underground uh, song maker, as he calls himself. Somebody may actually like the idea that it's not such a heavy lift. It's not such a struggle when you come to Nashville because everybody seems to be doing it. This is a compliment, but I don't think he's co-write material. I, I don't think he's the kind of guy, Moon June Spoon in a room. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's why when I went there, I never had a I, I never liked co-writing. It was like, but I'd say a funny thing about dreaming. I just learned this last week and maybe this is stupid. You've known this, but 
Have you ever heard of lucid dreaming? Yeah. yeah. Of course. You, do you know what that is? Yeah. Yeah. What is it? I, I explained to me that lucid dreaming is when you're dreaming and in the dream, you know, you're dreaming. Yeah. You know, you, you've known that? I, well, I do it every night. So like I, if you're in a dream and you're dreaming, how do you know in your dream that it's a dream? That makes no sense to me. No. So then you're just dreaming in your dream. No. So it's one of those things. It's your subconscious, but basically your subconscious is unpacking like the day that you've had or the thoughts that you've repressed. So like, I will know when I go to sleep that if something's coming up that it like actually didn't happen, that's not necessarily a memory. I'll know that I'm in a dream and like, I'll wake up and say, okay, that, that makes sense now as to like why that came up in my dream. But like in my dreams, I do know I'm dreaming. Okay, great. I've done it. uh, I've done it a time or two, but it was my understanding that you could take it to the next level, which is that you're actually dreaming or in a dream state in your conscious, in the conscious part of your day. That's Uh, like lucid living. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Uh, But it's. we should do a whole show well, on dreaming. No, uh, so I think it, it's uh, but with really lu- interesting. But with lucid dreaming, what's interesting about it is, is you gain control or at least some control over what you're dreaming about or what's right. going you're on. Right. You're right. And I, there have been many times where it's kind of turned towards like a nightmare or something that's unpleasant and I can wake myself out of it. See, every one of my dreams, you know, ends with me having to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the next question. I'm sorry I brought that up. (laughs) It'll be another topic we'll bring up another day. So uh, question number two is you're primarily focused on your music as a performer and songwriter, but you've also done film scores as well as produced other artists. How would you compare the experience of being a songwriter with scoring and producing? Well, for me, songwriting is the main event, uh, but I have done a few film scores and produced a few artists. Producing is really... uh, well, as you guys all know, it's really, I have to explain this to people outside the music world, but it's more like directing in a film. And it's so much of it is about pulling performances out of people and getting to know them. And like directing an actor uh, in a film, it's about getting them to show up with their their best self. And that can mean critiquing and encouraging and getting them to be real when they're sort of phoning it in, as well as doing arrangement stuff. So helping them kind of envision how the song might show up um and what i do as a when i do film scores i think it's in a way similar to that i feel my job is to understand what the film needs maybe what they didn't get you know footage that somehow isn't coming across and to bring an element of spirit into it or an element of uh meaning that may be not showing up on screen so it's like a it's like a third element that comes in and and enriches the whole experience as well as with a film, I write very thematically and I want to kind of use a limited number of themes in any feature film. And individually, each of those parts may be, uh, you know, just expressing what's happening on screen in that scene. But what may show up at the beginning is just, you know, a small theme, uh, you know, a little melody or a little chord movement. By the end of the film, the resonance of that builds so that you have an emotional connection with the film as a unique piece. Of course, songwriting, I, you know, like I talked about with the dream writing, I'm, I'm tapping into my own muse, but I do apply some of those principles of what I do in, in producing or in scoring. I, I see a song as an opportunity to create a little kind of micro world that, that fits what I'm singing about in the lyrics, maybe in a not super direct way, but there's like a sense of a song knows what it wants. 
try to follow the muse's direction. I agree totally with what that's he's, really the, cool. The last thing he said, you know, the, the song knows what he wants. Yeah, that that's why it takes me forever to write songs because like I, I I try not to get in the way of the song <laughs> because no. basically the, the best part of my songs are the ones that just come out of me when I try to sit down and try to like now okay now I'm going to write this verse I usually just mess it up if it doesn't come easy so I just put it away and let it come that's why I've, I've had songs that have taken me five years to write. You know? I like the personification. I like the idea that this song is a living, breathing thing, right? And you're communicating with it. Well, it's, you know, just by, as you create it, by hearing him speak, you know, I like to, I like where he talks, live his stuff. He, he's the kind of artist that gives me hope that there are guys out there still doing it the real way, you know, or the way that I think should be the real way, you know, just by they feel it and it's art and it comes from them and it's not about. I haven't heard once him mention fans or streams or or playlists or playlists. <laughs> he just talks about what he's doing and I think that's what he cares about. You know, I think anything that comes from that, you know, sure you all want success, but that should be the after result. By but you just be worrying about what you're doing, and that's what I think a lot of artists don't do today. They're too busy worrying about their numbers or their social media following and. Well, do you want to learn a little bit more about what he actually is doing? Uh-oh. Now watch. He'll just totally contradict everything. <laughs> <laughs> He'll mention every single thing uh, that we yeah. do. Now, what I'm doing right now is worrying about my streams. And my- <laughs> Go, what is the question? Um, so his new record, um, Earth City One, The Longing, comes out in June. Um, and it's the first part of a trilogy EP release that's going to happen. So we asked him to tell us about what you're doing with the trilogy and what's the meaning of it of it as a piece and also how did you decide to release it this way yeah trilogy in a world of of singles is kind of flying in the opposite direction but i just kind of like what everybody else is not doing um and uh in a way i see it like how television has sort of taken over for movies um and people develop a relationship with characters on tv shows now that extend for years it gives me a chance to go more deeply into a topic my father is actually a novelist, so I think, you know, maybe the sense of wanting to take time with, with things, even though I love the crystal form of a three or four minute pop song or rock song, I love that precision that you can have or really just focusing on one feeling. But I also like to be able to go into bigger topics. So, yeah, the record I have coming out, Earth City One, The Longing, is the first part of a trilogy, and, and um, I kind of realized last year that I've always been drawn to trilogies. I actually had a uh, a record I put out years ago called Songs from a Toxic Apartment, which I struggled with the form of it for a while and originally envisioned it as a three-part theater piece or concept album. It had this whole crazy story of this really offensive fictional metal band and young men growing up and dealing with their inner demons. And I eventually kind of was overwhelmed by trying to make that make sense and extracted the songs that were really just more personal and turned that into the record. But the notion of trilogies has always appealed to me. The magic of that, you have an idea, you have the counter idea, and then you have the solution to it. So in Earth City, I look at our civilization as as a whole. Small subject there, but um, a sense of that something's missing in the way that we live, literally living in cities, but also kind of metaphorically the complex civilization that we're in with technology making the whole world like a city how we're alienated from each other and from ourselves and from the natural world and where some kind of connection can return 
that's really what this whole thing is about. And part one, the longing is the sense of knowing that something is missing. And so it's both the disconnection and also the hope and pull to heal in ourselves. You know, I, I believe in trilogies as well. I think three is a big thing in our universe, actually, if you think about it. You know, there's there's like, you know, the well, there's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's that. There's there's the um, past, present, and future. There's um, e- even in comedy, like you know the the thing of threes. You know, like you know the dumb You know, like three things to make a joke, or even like when you write something. Three is a big thing. Trilogy is a big thing in our in our universe for some reason. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. So I so I agree, I agree with him. Yeah, he sounds like a cool guy. I'm officially going down the rabbit hole. I think it's really <laughs> terrific. So I've, Greg I've, I've thoroughly you enjoyed it. So we all you know, like you know I don't Gold? I don't rave about things very often on the podcast, but so do we like Ethan Gold, baby I Carla? Think, okay. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> all right, let's get us out of this episode. All right, everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the ninety four twenty podcast. For everything that we've talked about in this episode, you can go to our website, which is ninety four twenty dot com. That is the numbers nine four and the letters T W E N T Y. Here is Ethan's last single that we'll be featuring, New York, as we take you on out. Talk to y'all later. Bye-bye. Say goodbye, Greg. Bye, Greg. (laughs) Our reading dear is here in New York. Stone churches where our searches could be haunted. As another life flies by in New York And the evil skip and weave through streets and parks Horns will strive in the hive, coffee and water Under lights, summer nights will be harder Sidewalks to building tops Heat rises, never stops in New York But lay Bell Avenue, we inherit Lose their spell with no two to share it And to tell nothing true, I couldn't
you, my love, we can steal the stars above.